This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 38 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am going to have a discussion about person-first language versus identity-first language. So I'll share a little bit of the history and the perspective behind each of those, and then I will also share my perspective on those two types of language as a, number one, a neurodivergent adult, and also as a professional who's worked with neurodivergence and their families for a number of years. I will give some specific examples from my own life and from my clinical work. And the topic that I am going to focus around is the one that's very common on this show, which is executive functioning. So with that said, before we get going in the episode, I wanted to remind you about my free parenting guide. In this guide, I outline what executive functioning skills are, as well as the different types of executive functioning skills. So if you are someone who is supporting a child in your life who has some difficulties with executive functioning, whether it be due to a specific diagnosis or whether you aren't really sure 
why they are having a hard time getting themselves organized and staying regulated and focused, this guide will be extremely helpful for you to just understand the specific skills that they can work on that will help them to become more focused and independent. So to check out that free parent guide, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash parent guide, and you'll be able to sign up for your free copy. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash parent guide. So now let's get into the episode. So let's talk a little bit about what person-first language is and identity-first language and why we're even having this discussion. So back when I went and got my degree back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, in the field of special ed, as well as some of the related clinical fields, such as speech pathology and other clinical professions, it was commonly taught that you should use person-first language when referring to someone who has a disability or has some type of medical diagnosis. So for example, if we're going to use autism, you wouldn't say an autistic person or an autistic, you would want to say a person with autism. And the rationale behind using this kind of language was that we want to see them as a person first, and we want to see whatever that diagnosis or condition or whatever it is, you would want to see that as just something that that they're experiencing or that is a part of them, but isn't necessarily something that defines them as a person. The reason that this was taught was that it was thought to be more respectful than labeling someone as autistic, for example. And as I am explaining this, again, remember, when I was going through school, this was back in the again, late 90s, early 2000s. And this is something that was consistent through a lot of the literature. So if you went to some kind of a seminar in special ed, speech pathology, social work, psychology, related fields like that, you would see person-first language. If you were looking at peer-reviewed journals, you would also see person-first language. So it was, I remember as I was writing papers, sometimes grammatically difficult sometimes to have to remember to use person-first language. And so as a result, it was something that was really drilled into my head and it became habitual for me. I'll also share personally that at the time, I did not have any specific diagnoses myself. And so as a result... I didn't necessarily have the perspective just personally that I do now that has since changed, and I'll get into that in a little bit. So that's just something to note. As I was going through my schooling, I wasn't necessarily thinking of it from a personal perspective. What I wanted to do now was just share a little bit of the research that 
went behind the philosophy behind person-first language and why people thought that using identity first, so saying, you know, for example, a dyslexic person or an autistic person. I want to explain a little bit of the research that went behind why people went away from that. As I explain this, keep in mind that I'm just explaining the history at this point and explaining the thought process and the theory behind this, I'm not necessarily agreeing with this. So again, just keep that in mind as I'm explaining. I'm just putting all the information out there, and I will share my personal thoughts on this at the end. As we think about the rationale behind person-first language, I wanted to talk about labeling theory and the concept of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So The self-fulfilling prophecy, or that term, was coined by someone named Robert K. Merton back in 1948. And basically what a self-fulfilling prophecy is, is a false understanding of a certain situation. And that false understanding causes a new behavior, which makes the original false understanding true. So for example, if someone were to label themselves as lazy and they take on that identity, then what happens is that as they assume that identity, they start to engage in actions that are consistent with it and as a result, make it true. I use this example specifically because this is a common identity that people tend to assume if they're treated in a certain way. For example, if they're punished because they don't have a certain skill and they can't complete a certain task, and they're essentially being punished because of something that they haven't learned to do, then they can assume the identity of, oh, I'm just a lazy person, I'm not motivated. And then over time, they become someone who does come across as lazy and not motivated. And that is a shame because in many cases, it's not necessarily true. And I use this example again, because sometimes when people have a diagnosis, when it's if they are neurodivergent, then people misunderstand why they do or don't do a certain thing. And then as a result of the way that they treat that person, um, that person, you know, it can really affect their self-esteem. So if a child is punished because they're not sitting in their seat in school, for example, because they have a hard time sitting still and they need to move, and they are labeled as a you know, a a bad kid or someone who misbehaves or someone who's defiant, well, then they can start to engage in certain behaviors that come across as defiant because they've been treated that way. So I wanted to make the distinction here that all of these labels that I'm talking about right now don't necessarily have to go along with a certain diagnosis. So for example, a lot of times people, if they have a diagnosis of ADHD, for example, they might start to assume some of those things about themselves, lazy, defiant, misbehaving, all of those things. 
And sometimes people will put those two things together, even though that isn't necessarily accurate. One of the perspectives behind the whole person first movement is that if you allow someone to make their disability part of their identity, that they will somehow have some kind of a a negative self-fulfilling prophecy. So for example, if you tell someone that they have ADHD, then they are going to just believe that they're not able to attend and focus and get things done. And they're going to be lazy and defiant and all of those things. That is one extreme dream assumption that some people have thought in the past when it comes to the case for person-first language. Now, the problem with that assumption is that if you give someone a diagnosis, for example, and you assume that there is going to be some kind of a negative impact on them, some kind of a negative self-fulfilling prophecy, you're assuming that they think that that diagnosis is something bad. So for that example, if I'm concerned that telling someone that they have ADHD and allowing that to be part of their identity, if I'm assuming that it's going to be negative, it means that you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions there about what they think that that means. So does having ADHD mean that you're inattentive and lazy? And does it mean that you're going to become more inattentive and, you know, engage in some behaviors that we think are negative just because you have that identity? Well, not necessarily because it depends what you think that label means. So while the premise behind person first was that we want this to be empowering to the individual. It really kind of depends what they think that identity means and what they think that label means. I know that some people who have shared specific concerns with me have been concerned, you know, like saying things like, oh, I don't want my child to be labeled. I don't want there to be negative stigma about some kind of diagnosis. So some people might go to the extreme of not telling their child that they have some kind of a diagnosis. And everybody who is in favor or who likes person-first language doesn't necessarily think to that extreme, but that is something that has come up. The main thing to take away here is that the rationale behind this type of language. So again, saying something like a person with autism instead of an autistic person or a person with dyslexia instead of a dyslexic person. There really were good intentions behind it. Basically, people just wanted a way to refer to people that was respectful and empowering to them, that looks at them as a person and not just one thing labeled by one certain identity. So generally speaking, people had good intentions. Uh, now, having good intentions doesn't necessarily mean that you are correct. 
and that you are doing things that will resonate with everyone. So that's why I wanted to flip and talk about the other side and the case that people are making behind identity first language and why some people prefer that to person first language. So in a lot of the neurodiversity groups and Specifically in the autism community, there has been a shift to identity first language that a lot of people who are autistic are saying that they actually prefer identity first language. So rather than calling them a person with autism, they'd prefer that you just call them an autistic or an autistic person. And I've also seen this shift in the ADHD community and other communities as well. And the rationale behind this is that a lot of people feel that their autism, for example, colors all of their experiences and it's hard to separate it from their experiences that they're having and the way that they see the world. So they don't feel that is something that is separate from them. They see it as something that is part of them. And the concern from the person first side is, oh, does that mean that it's a crutch for you? Does it mean that it's something bad? Well, a lot of people who prefer identity first language don't necessarily see it that way because they see it as a neurological difference. They don't necessarily always think it's good or bad, just different. And as a result, when you're thinking about intervention Sometimes the language that you use at the beginning, people feel that it can impact the way that you would go about supporting someone. And so if you are taking it from the perspective of this is some kind of a bad thing that this person is experiencing that we want to eradicate, then the concern is, well, do we want to fit someone who is not neurotypical into this neurotypical box and force them to do things in a certain way that work for neurotypicals that won't necessarily work for them, rather than simply looking at it from the perspective of, here is a person who has a specific goal, how do we help them to achieve those goals that are important to them? Other concerns are that when you use person-first language, you're somehow implying that there is this one part of them or this thing that makes them somehow broken that you are trying to fix. And as a result, when you see it that way, a lot of people don't like person-first language because they feel that that's what it means. And they don't want to be looked at as someone who has this thing about them that needs to be fixed. They'd rather be thought of as different rather than broken. So before I go on and talk a little bit about my personal take on this situation based on the perspectives of other people I've talked to and my own personal experience, I wanted to just say all of the information that I've shared with you is based on number one, research. So specifically, some of the research about self-fulfilling prophecy that I mentioned at the very beginning. And then also just perspectives shared based on what I have heard from other people and what I have experienced personally. I certainly don't speak for everyone. 
And so just know that if you talk to someone else about this, and if you talk to someone about what their preference is regarding person first versus identity first, whether they are a clinician and they have clinical experience or whether they have personal experience with it or both, just know that you're going to get some different opinions. And I have certainly not explained all the different perspectives in this episode, but I wanted to just give you a little bit of a synopsis based on what has been shared with me and based on what I've experienced personally. So my personal take based on my own personal experiences is that Of course, language matters and labeling can make a difference and the way that you interact with someone can have an impact on them. So that is certainly valid. We definitely want to be validating people's experiences, but whether you go with person first versus identity first is highly dependent on the context and what that means to the specific person that you're working with. So if you are someone who is supporting someone who has a specific diagnosis, I am a big believer that we should not be afraid of a diagnosis. A lot of people are afraid that if they tell their child about a certain diagnosis, that they will be stigmatized. And in my experience, I have rarely seen a case where there has been a child who has learned about their diagnosis when it didn't have some positive impact on them. And the reason is because it arms them with knowledge to help them advocate for themselves and to have a better understanding of what is going to work for them. A diagnosis is not something that we need to be afraid of, that we need to worry about, because it's not necessarily the label that is the issue. And and that's really what people are concerned about. The label is not the issue. It's more what you make that label mean. So for example, if you have a diagnosis of ADHD and you think, oh, this means I'm lazy and defiant, well, then that is what it's going to mean for you. And and yes, there might be a self-fulfilling prophecy there, but it doesn't have to mean that. It could simply mean, okay, well, that means that I have this neurological difference that makes certain situations harder for me compared to other people because I'm wired differently than than others. So that means that I might have to modify my environment in a certain way, and I might want to advocate for myself in this way. In a way, we can look at it as a roadmap that helps people to advocate for themselves and to set boundaries. So we certainly don't have to be afraid of a diagnosis. So I wanted to say that we don't necessarily want to withhold that information from kids because it doesn't give them an accurate understanding of their own needs. It doesn't have to be a crutch. It can be simply something that they use in order to understand how to help themselves be successful. So I wanted to say that first and foremost. However, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of, is person first better? Is identity first better? 
And my thoughts on that are that I would err towards giving people a way to critically think and make decisions rather than tell them the answer. So for example, rather than telling someone what they should and shouldn't do, or rather than telling someone the language they should or shouldn't use to refer to themselves, whether they want to use person first or identity first, I would focus more on giving them a strategy for thinking through what that means to them and figuring out which one is going to be the most empowering for them. Because there really isn't a consensus. A lot of people will say that there is, but when you actually talk to people, there's kind of a mix. Some people strongly prefer identity first, some people still prefer person first, and some say, you know what, I I go back and forth between the two based on the context and the situation. And and some people just always feel like they're fluid between the two. I would say that I am somebody who is fluid between the two for myself personally. I have been diagnosed with inattention, and I don't refer to myself as an ADHDer because that doesn't resonate with me personally, but I know some people who do prefer identity first language within that particular context. So for myself, I kind of move between the two because I don't think that one always fits the situation, but I know other people feel differently. So I certainly don't speak for everyone. And I don't think it's my job to tell other people how they should refer to themselves. However, if I was working with someone clinically, what I'd want to get to the bottom of is what does that mean to you? So whether somebody uses person first or identity first, I'd rather get to the root of what they really think about themselves and what Does that mean to you with regards to the way that you live your life and what you think you can do? Because one person could use identity first language and they could have a really empowering view of the world. They could be responsible for themselves and believe in themselves and and believe that they're able to advocate for themselves and set up their situations so that they can achieve the goals that they want to do. If that is working for them, and they're happy and successful, and they are being responsible for their actions, then I don't see that there is a problem there. However, if they are using identity first language, and they think that that identity means that they're incapable of doing certain things that are important to them, I don't know that I'd necessarily tell them that the use of language to refer to themselves is the problem, I would dig more into the meaning behind it and work on shifting some of their beliefs about themselves as far as the qualities associated with that identity. And if they chose in that process to change the way to refer to themselves, that would be fine. But if not, that would be fine as well. Same with person first. So if someone comes in and they're saying, you know, I'm not 
an autistic person, I'm a person with autism, and they look at it as this is this terrible thing about me that I want to eradicate completely. Well, that's probably not a very empowering way of looking at things. And so I would focus more on, okay, what are some specific things that you want to work on? What are some things that are important to you? You know, do you want to build relationships with people? What are some ways that we can start working on doing that? And if throughout the journey of self-exploration, if they decide, you know what, person-first language doesn't work for me anymore. I'm an autistic person. I want to embrace that. And, and that feels empowering to me, then, then great. So I would rather focus on the meaning behind the language rather than the language itself and allow people to figure out what works for them. Because as I said before, it's not up to me to decide how people want to identify. But if I were a clinician in that particular instance supporting them, I would care more about how they are using that description and how that affects their identity and what they think that means as far as their ability to do things in their lives. So that is how I would approach it. And I would let them choose which one resonates with them, whether they want to pick one or the other or whether they want to be more fluid between the two. That is how I would personally handle it. And that is how I've personally handled it myself. I don't think that this is something that should come from the outside being imposed on someone else. I think it's more of something that we as as caregivers, as clinicians, as parents, or whatever your role is, I think that our role is more of a teach them to fish rather than give them the fish. If we're telling someone, you should refer to yourself as a person with autism, or you should refer to yourself as an autistic person, and this is better, well, that's just telling them the answer. That's not facilitating the process of them coming up with the answer themselves. Now, it would be perfectly acceptable in any instance, whether it be the language they use or whether it be some other situation that they are working through where they want to figure out what action should I take in this situation. I am definitely a proponent of using different cognitive strategies, such as the pros and the cons of doing one thing versus the other, and then letting them build evidence for one side versus the other side, that's great. Again, that is a critical thinking skill that is going to serve them. And so I would definitely be in support of something like that and supporting them along the way and maybe modeling the way that you might think through a situation, but not necessarily just telling them, okay, this is the answer. Again, it's about the process and the strategy rather than just giving them the answers. And of course, the parent, the caregiver, the clinician, the person supporting them, the adult in their life who is helping them through, their role would be more of a a model, a coach, a facilitator to help them through that process so that they're eventually able to be more and more independent over time.
So this is a good place to wrap up. I wanted to get into some more specific examples that I did. So what I'm going to do is continue this conversation in the next episode, and I will get into a discussion about ableism. So what it is and why it's important that caregivers and clinicians are aware of what it is and how they can make sure that they are being supportive and empowering to the children in their lives as they grow. So we'll get into that discussion in the next episode. For now, we will wrap up. I wanted to remind you before you go that if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend that you check out my parent guide. If you are supporting a child who has a hard time with executive functioning, so this would be skills that enable them to complete tasks independently, some of those day-to-day things that you would expect kids to be able to do, so simple things like getting dressed, keeping their things picked up, getting their homework turned in on time, managing deadlines, and just being able to Be aware of the passage of time and how long it takes to get things done so that they can plan ahead and get things done in a reasonable amount of time. Well, those are all things that fall under the scope of executive functioning skills. So if you are supporting a child who is working through any of those things that I mentioned, I highly recommend that you check out my free parent guide. In this guide, I explain exactly what executive functioning skills are and some red flags that will indicate whether or not your child could use some work on those things. If you have a child who's diagnosed with ADHD, then that is a hallmark characteristic. So I would definitely recommend checking out the guide, or even if your child doesn't have a specific diagnosis, but is working through some of those particular skills, then I highly recommend that you check out the guide because it will outline what executive functioning skills are so that you can start to understand how to support your kids. So all you need to do to download that guide is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash parent guide. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash parent guide. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you that it is super helpful to us in getting this information into the ears of people who need it. If you rate and review our podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and also feel free to share this episode with your friends or colleagues if you think they would find it helpful. We would really appreciate that. So for now, we will wrap up but I will see you in episode 39. Thank you so much for listening.
you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test, you can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.